So we kind of threw a couple new songs at you tonight. I hope that was okay. Um, the, the one that we did, Who Is This, is really, man, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's hard to know, is this an Easter song or a Christmas song? And in some ways, one of the things I think as you're heading towards Christmas is to always remember Easter at Christmas. You should always remember Easter at Christmas because Jesus didn't come just for the heck of it. He came to die, right? And in some ways, our culture loves to keep those two things separate. And even to think of gifts, not um, him coming to die as, as the gift. Um, he didn't come just to live among us. And yet, the life that he did live among us um, was hard. And that verse, um, verse 2, and who is this? Who is this, a man of sorrows, walking sadly life's hard way, homeless, weary, sighing, weeping, over sin and Satan's sway? That means it broke Jesus' heart to see what a mess sin and Satan had made of the good creation. Right? He was a man of sorrows. And um, what we're going to talk about tonight actually is part of that. Um, I, I was thinking about, about this as we're singing that song. One of the things I love about the tune, Chris Miner, who went to Vanderbilt, gosh, I guess it was in the late 80s, early 90s, wrote that tune to that text. It's an old um, 19th century hymn text. So Chris put it to a new tune. And I love the way his tune goes from the minor to the major key because the text kind of does that. It like really builds on this paradox. Who is it that's the man of sorrows? Tis our God, our glorious Savior. See, glorious and man of sorrows aren't supposed to go together. And the passage we're going to look at tonight is, is a passage that doesn't seem to fit the paradigm of what Israel was expecting. We're going to look uh, actually at Isaiah 53, though the text actually begins at the end of chapter 52. So if you have a Bible, you look at Isaiah 52, last couple verses, and then into Isaiah 53. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating passage. It's one of those passages that I, I think I first discovered it when I was probably your age, when I was in college. And I've always found it to be a passage that when my heart is feeling cold towards the Lord... This is a passage that always really helps me because it's, I think it's a passage where we can actually gaze upon Christ. It's more a, a meditation. Behold, look at this one, the man of sorrows who's the glorious God. How do these things fit together? It's one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And there are a lot of people, even today, if you look at Jewish and Christians kind of debating uh, these servant songs in Isaiah, a lot of Jewish folks will say the servant songs are speaking to Israel as a nation. But then there are places where it just doesn't fit to think of Israel as being the full fulfillment of these servant songs. And this is one of those. This is one of those passages that is so um, clear about Jesus and what he would come to do. And it's a, it's a passage that really doesn't make sense until Jesus comes and fulfills this, and then things begin to fall into place. 
You know, you ever had like a puzzle that you're working on and it's like that, that one piece that you just can't figure out how this big section that you've got goes with this section and then there's that piece and all of a sudden it all starts to come together. That's what the coming of Jesus is like um, for the gospel of Isaiah. And I think that's a good way to think of it, the gospel of Isaiah. Um, so we're going to look at Isaiah 52. I'm going to start reading at verse 13 and then we're going to go through this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although no, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I know that's a, a long passage, and I won't, I won't be able to say everything about every verse there, right? But, but here's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest passages to see what was coming. It's really about Good Friday. Even when you think about that phrase, do you hear the, the weird paradox in that? Good Friday? It's a strange thing, isn't it? 
a Friday on which an innocent man, Jesus, was put to death is regarded as Good Friday in the church. You see, Good Friday is about how things aren't always what they seem. Good Friday is actually about misunderstanding, but it's also about seeing more clearly than you ever have before. Because at the cross, the power of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God is more clearly seen than it ever could have been before. Martin Luther talked about this. He talked about what's called the theology of the cross. And he contrasted it with what he called the theology of glory. The theologians of glory were those who would kind of have these philosophical debates about the attributes of God. Things like, well, is God so, you know, if God is omnipotent, you know, can he make a rock that's too big for him to be able to to move it, and they would talk about God in these abstractions. Martin Luther said, no, 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 no. That's like spying upon God in his nakedness. The way to understand what God is like is to follow the advice of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And preeminently, where Jesus is most clearly revealed is at the cross. But here's the thing about the cross. It looks like God is doing nothing. If you'd been there, you would have concluded, like everybody else, God had abandoned Jesus and God was absent from the scene. In fact, God was doing his greatest work. This is what Martin Luther called the theology of the cross. And he said it's actually a key to understanding what the Christian life is all about. Often when it feels like God is doing nothing, he's doing some of his greatest work. It means that your feelings can't be trusted as a barometer for whether God is at work or not. The theology of the cross, what we learn from the cross is that things are not always what they seem. And that's what Isaiah 53 is about. Look at how it starts. It starts by saying, have you seen God's power? Behold, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And then it takes this weird turn in the next verse. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance or human likeness and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It goes down a little farther and it talks in verse, um, uh, where is it there? Oh, look at verse uh, one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So it's like high and lifted up, arm of the Lord revealed. The arm of the Lord is an image that refers to God's strength and God's power. And if you trace that image through the book of Isaiah in particular, it's always about God's power. The right hand is the hand of power. And yet right here in the middle of this, he'll be high and exalted, but we're all going to be astonished because his appearance is going to be so marred, so distorted, that he's not even going to be recognized 
as a man. Mm. Here in Isaiah 53, we see that the arm of the Lord comes not just as a person God works through, but as God himself, but God himself whose appearance will be so disfigured that people will turn away and won't be able to look at him. God's arm is going to come, but people are going to dismiss the revealing of the arm of God. Why? Well, in verse 2, it seems like he comes from a natural origin. His birth doesn't seem very remarkable. Now, I know there's the virgin birth, but remember what people said, you know, this guy, we know Jesus. He, he like grew up in Galilee. He's the carpenter's son. Nothing special about him, right? And that's what it's saying here. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He seems, in verse 2, to be distinguished from God, a person separate from God. So it's already like entering into this paradoxical thing. He grew up before him, meaning Jesus grew up before God like a normal person, right? Nothing in particular beautiful about him, no evidence of his special status at all. Thus, he was not valued. I think verse 3 is incredible. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and this is the ultimate judgment. We esteemed him not. Do you know what that means? That means we considered him of no value. That means if you had scales and you put your comfort here and you put Jesus here, like your comfort <laughs> always will be weightier than Jesus, or your happiness, or your security, or whatever it is. We esteemed him not. We didn't value him, because he didn't really seem very special. And not only was that true of his life, it was certainly true of his death. At the cross, as Jesus hung on the cross, the people looking on had many thoughts about what was going on, right? Some thought, oh, what a tragedy. Some thought it was well-deserved. It's what he gets for blasphemy in the temple. Some thought it was a noble expression of Jesus' commitment to his vision and his ideals. Some saw it as an expression of his egomania, finally getting what it deserved. Some saw it as a manifestation of his helplessness. He healed others. He helped others. Why can't he help himself? But no one saw it as the supreme manifestation of the power of God. Yet that's what it was. Things aren't always what they seem. And Jesus was in control of what was going on. The emphasis in this passage is on him willingly laying down his life. He wasn't killed by the Romans or even by the Father. Look at verse 6 and 7. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent or dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was in control. 
You know, it's one thing for a sheep to not open its mouth because it doesn't know what's coming. It's not unusual for a cow as they're taking it through and they're about to shoot it in the back of the head. They don't cry out. They're just dumb and they just go. But Jesus knew exactly what was coming. And he was silent. He took it willingly. He took it willingly. Christ does something that's amazing. He took this punishment willingly. And do you know why that matters? Because you and I sin willingly. Colossians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says this, that as Jesus was hanging there, seemingly helpless, stripped naked, he was in fact triumphing over his enemies. As he was hanging there as a public spectacle, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, he was making a public spectacle of the powers and the principalities who thought that they had triumphed. As he hung there stripped of his clothes and his dignity, he was in fact stripping the devil and all his minions of their weapons and triumphing over them by the cross. Because what they had to be able to accuse you and me was the law. You haven't obeyed the law. How dare you think that God would welcome you into his presence? And Jesus, dying on the cross, stripped them of that power because he took the punishment that we deserved. And the power that Satan had to accuse the children of God was gone, ripped apart. We're so used to thinking of the cross as a victory. But do you understand, in the first century, nobody thought of the cross as a victory. And thus, I think we lose how outrageous the central idea of Christianity really is. Jesus triumphs by a cross? It doesn't really make any sense. Cross and triumph don't actually even belong in the same sentence. It would make more sense if the Apostle Paul said that Jesus triumphs by the resurrection or by the ascension or by his coming again to usher in his kingdom, but he doesn't. He says that Jesus triumphs by a cross because things aren't always what they seem. It's the clearest picture of the power of God that you'll see in the Bible, and it looks like God is not doing a damn thing. Have you ever been awed looking at the sky and the stars? Just amazing, right? As amazing as it is to gaze on God's creation, here's what you need to see. The power of God in creation is nothing. All it took was a word. All it took was a word. Let it be. And it was. But the redemption of God's people took the death of his only begotten son. God's power is seen at the cross. How do you define God's power? Is it only when he works according to our agenda? See, if we'd been there on Good Friday, we would have concluded that God had not shown up. That's what the bystanders concluded. If he's God's anointed, God will rescue him. But the point of Good Friday, like Martin Luther said, is that when it looks like God is doing nothing, He's really doing his most important, powerful work. We often think that God's power is only at work when he's working according to our agenda. The point of Good Friday, the point of the cross, is watch and wonder. 
That, that's why I love the hymn writers, because I think they get this. We sometimes try to get it all figured out, and they say things like, and can it be? And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Like there are some of these ideas that questions are the only way to really kind of focus and get lost in the, the wonder of this. And can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? How could that ever make sense? Or this one, I love this one. Oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Like it just, it doesn't go together, but it does. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said it this way. He said, when I can't understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God has set a chair there for me to kneel and worship. That the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. And there is no more mysterious, no more paradoxical thing than that the arm of the Lord, the power of God, would be revealed by him being so disfigured by the beatings that people wouldn't even look on him as a man. Jesus suffered, but the real question is why? And this passage shows us a lot of things. And it says basically people saw him suffer, but they didn't understand why. They didn't understand what was going on. He was a man of sorrows, yes, but why? Verse four says, it's because he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. His sorrow was not his own. It was for us. How extraordinary. I don't know about you, but I would do almost anything to not be sad. Jesus had the choice, and he chose to take our griefs. Yet he was still misunderstood, right? Look at verse 4. We esteemed him, we believed he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is what the Jews thought. Anybody that was crucified, it proved that they were cursed by God. Because Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And in the first century, the Jews thought that was a reference to crucifixion. The Apostle Paul says, that's true. You're right, but you don't understand the significance. He was stricken by God, but not for his sake, for ours. Of course, he was stricken by God, but it was for us. Without our cooperation, Without us even understanding what he was doing, the servant reconciles God's people to God. That's verse 4. When it says, surely he's borne our griefs, it's saying, look at this. Like, this is remarkable. It is. Even the disciples failed to understand what was going on, right? There's a common theme all through the Gospels. They don't get what's going on. His suffering goes on. He suffers as a substitute. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Uh, literally, the, the Hebrew is here, the peace punishment was on Him. The punishment, see, this is the idea of substitution. Jesus died as a substitute. He died in our place. Do you know what that matters, why that matters? Because if you think 
that Jesus just kind of died and then it becomes effective if you add your faith to it, like the missing ingredient, then, then when you wonder if your faith is real or genuine, you'll wonder if Jesus' work was really enough. In other words, think of it as a, like a math equation. If it's Jesus' work on the cross plus Kevin's faith equals salvation, what happens if Kevin's faith is a variable? Then salvation is variable. But the Bible's picture is Jesus suffered in the place of his people. And that results in salvation. That results in people's hearts being changed, crying out like newborn infants in faith. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. And substitution is what gives us security. His death deals with every aspect of our need. I love that he talks here about by his wounds we are healed. Healing is holistic. It's a restoration of fullness and completeness, and it's something the Messiah promised to do. Jesus didn't come just so that we could get a get-out-of-hell-free card and go to heaven when we die. Jesus came to make all things new. Healing, this world, everything will be made right. He suffered, fulfilling the Lord's will. This is one of those... Uh, mysteries here in verse 10 that is, um, I think it, our minds are too feeble for this, but this is God's word. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and Jesus took it willingly. In other words, it wasn't like the father and the son were like trying to kind of work this out. They both rejoiced to take their part in the working of salvation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together. And I love verse 6. We go astray as sheep, but we return as children. See that? Now what's interesting is verse 10 and 11 and 12, because it's talking here about crushing and being put to grief, being put to death. But then it talks about how he will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In verse 11, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge or it could be translated by the knowledge of him, many will be accounted righteous. And then in verse 12, he gets part of the spoils. How can that be? I mean, this is, a, this is a story of one who is crushed for our iniquities, but by the end of the story, he's receiving this great reward. The spoils, that's what you get when you win a great victory. How can this be? It's, the, it's this idea. Only with the resurrection of Jesus does Isaiah 53 fully make sense? He doesn't just die, he dies and triumphs and receives what he paid for. A friend of mine used to say, Jesus would rather die than live without us. 
let that thought be rooted in the heart of your being, right? Gaze at the cross. See God's power, but also see his wisdom and his mercy, his love and his justice. I love the great hymn by John Newton. We sing it sometimes. Let us love and sing and wonder this verse. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. A couple applications. We don't have to wonder what God thinks of us if our trust is in Jesus and in his death. God's acceptance of his people is not based on his whim or his mood of the moment. Maybe you know people, maybe your parents, maybe your friends. You just are always every morning kind of wondering what kind of mood they're in. God is never like that. He actually doesn't even sleep. So he never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, right? <laughs> and, and what he thinks about you has been secured by Jesus. And it says here that the servant looked on what he did and he was satisfied. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. And all those who put their trust in him can rest assured about what he thinks about us. Because what Jesus did is finished. He suffered hell in our place. But this is not just to make us feel good. It's to constrain us to live as a people who've been bought with a price. And the Bible always makes that connection. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Therefore, live like dearly loved children. Because that is, in fact, who you are, what you are. Jesus was bound so that we could be free, but the freedom he invites us to is a freedom to die to ourselves and to live for him and for others. Every place the Bible talks about freedom and being free, it says use your freedom to serve one another. You don't have to be so focused on trying to make sure what God thinks about you. It actually really changes the way you live. When was the last time you really just gazed upon Jesus suffering on the cross. One of my favorite hymn writers, Ann Steele, loves to talk about the power of a transporting gaze. Is that what you look for when you sing and when you read the Bible and when you go to church, if you go to church? To see Jesus, to see Christ crucified. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's everything. It's the heart of everything. And this is a passage that I just find over and over again when my heart is cold and I want to just gaze upon Christ and him crucified. Isaiah 53 is it. He was oppressed and afflicted, opened not his mouth. The Lord's will to crush him, put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by the knowledge of of him, many will be accounted righteous. Do you know him? Have you put your trust in him? These are good questions. These are ultimate questions. And if you've not 
thought about them very much and you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it. Because this is really the heart of the gospel. And I hope that that's what RUF will be a place where you can come hear more about that. Next semester, we're going to try to connect the dots between this message and the way we live. We're going to do a series um, when you guys get back on gospel-driven relationships. It's not just like sex, marriage, and dating, though that'll be in there. But it's other things because there's so many one another's in the New Testament, but they all start from this presupposition that you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. If you are dearly loved children, how then shall we live in this world with one another? How does this gospel actually flesh itself out in the way we live, right? So I hope you'll, you'll come back. Hope you'll come to the Christmas party first. Um, bring a wrapped gift, gag gift. It's going to be awesome. Um, and then next semester, we're going to talk about gospel-driven relationships because the gospel is not just something to sort of tuck away and say, yep, kind of got that. It's really something that should propel us and drive the way we live. Let's pray together.